to the Mission North Shore podcast. John chapter 8. We've been in John chapter 8 for a little while now. Well, that's all right. We're, uh, we're going to continue on in our series on the life and times of, of Jesus. And we are up to John chapter 8. And as we've talked about in the past, in John chapter 8, Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, or, or also called Sukkot. And um, he'd been teaching and, and preaching in the temple compound now for days as we come here to, to the latter part of John chapter 8. And he's had kind of a mixed reaction. That's what we see in John chapter 8. Jesus is at this point just telling them straight up, right? We, we've talked about in the past that part of the celebration of Sukkot or the, the part of the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles is the there's this water ceremony that goes on. And Jesus, in light of the water ceremony, walks into the temple compound and he says, I'm the source of living water. Then we said the second major ceremony was the temple lighting ceremony that goes on at the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was in light of that that Jesus walks into the temple compound and he says, I'm the light of the world. He's not holding anything back. You want to hold this festival that's supposed to point toward God? He says, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He, he's telling them straight up. They're, they're, he's m- mixing no words at this point. In fact, look at verse 23 and 24. He says to, to the people that are there around him as he's preaching, he says, You're from below and I'm from above. You're of this world and I'm not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he... You will die in your sins. He's not covering anything up, is he? He's laying it all out there for anybody that will listen at this point. And and what John chapter 8 depicts for us and pretty much tells us straight up is that there's a mixed reaction. Now, we know that the religious leaders have long since rejected Jesus. Way back in Matthew chapter 12, they they nationally rejected Jesus. But here in John chapter 8, we're also told that many of the common people are now rejecting Jesus, right? Everybody has come from all over Israel into Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. And many of those people who have come, just common, you know, people from wherever doing whatever they're doing, have showed up and now they're rejecting Jesus. But what we're going to see in our text today is that it's going to tell us that many people believed Jesus. At least they believe something about him, something concerning Jesus. And what we're going to look at today is what does Jesus do with people that believe him? So so I want to start by asking a question to get us thinking right off the bat. Are you a Christian? Think about that for a second. Are you a Christian? Now, you might go like, look, dude, this is a really silly question to ask in the meeting of the church, right? Because most of you guys would say, that's why I'm here, because I would identify myself as a Christian. And we use that terminology, Christian, all the time. We use it of ourselves all of the time. Somebody walks up to you and says, hey, you know, Scott, how come you do this or you don't do this? How come you care about these people? Jim, how come you don't cheat on your taxes? Norm, how come you do this? And, and, And we said, well, because I'm a Christian. How come you, you take your Sundays and you go to church? Well, because I'm a Christian. 
And we use this terminology all the time of ourselves. We use it of other people as well, right? We'll, we'll see somebody maybe in the workplace and maybe under their breath, we hear them say they're, they're doing something and they're having, it. oh, praise the Lord. Hey, are you a Christian? Or you, you see somebody with a bumper sticker or a, a cross around their neck and you might ask that question. Are, are you a Christian? But here's the thing with that word and that terminology is that in our world today, in our culture the word Christian has become a pretty vague term, hasn't it? It can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. For some people, it's a cultural thing. It was the way they grew up, right? Maybe their parents still go to church. So, yeah, yeah, I would, I would say I'm, you know, a Christian. Maybe they believe stuff about Jesus. Like, yeah, I dig the whole Christmas thing. I like the baby manger thing. And, and yeah, the crossing, I've heard that up. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and so they believe stuff about Jesus and so they would qualify themselves as a Christian. Many of the cults that we know today in America identify themselves as Christian. Jehovah Witness and Mormon and Christian Science and, and so on. There's many of those type cults that would identify themselves as Christians. In fact, statistically, right about 80% of adult Americans identify themselves as Christian. About 80% of the adults of our country identify themselves as Christian. Now, we know that not 80% of our country are people that are following Christ, right? We understand that because if that were the case, our country would look quite different wouldn't it? But statistically, if you ask individuals on multiple different pollings of America, about 80% come out saying they identify themselves as Christians. So then what we do is we say this word Christian in our world, in our culture, is, is quite a vague word. It can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. There's, there's knockoffs and, and, and there's spinoffs and there's people that can say and be and do just about anything in our culture and still identify themselves as Christian. Now, here's why that is. Here's why that word Christian is so ambiguous in our world today. It's because it's not defined in the Bible. What I mean by that is this. You can't turn to any scripture that says, okay, if you're going to be a Christian, here's what you do, here's how you act, here's how you live. So the word ends up very ambiguous because it's not defined by Scripture. You guys turn to the passage where Jesus says, hey, if you're going to be a Christian, here's what I need you to do. Nobody can do that because it doesn't exist. And while the word Christian has become very common within the church and we use it to identify ourselves, the truth is the word Christian only appears three times in all of Scripture. And never is it ever used of the followers of Christ describing themselves. It's never used of followers of Christ describing themselves. It's always used of outsiders describing the followers of Christ. All three times that we see. So, so what, what ends up happening is the church never in, in history, early history, first century church, the, the apostles 
and so forth. They never called themselves Christians. The people outside of the church called them Christians, and they used it as a derogatory term to describe the people of Jesus. We only see it three times in all of Scripture. Let let me give you one of them. Acts chapter 11, verse 26. Now, what's happened here is there's, there's been this great revival in the town of Antioch. And a guy by the name of Barnabas goes to Antioch to check out this revival. He sees all of these people getting saved, Jews and Gentiles alike, in Antioch. And he goes, wow, this is overwhelming. These people need to to be trained up a little bit more. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go get this guy, Paul. used to be Saul of Tarsus, now living in Tarsus. So, So he leaves Antioch in Acts chapter 11. He goes to Tarsus. He grabs Paul. He brings him back to Antioch for the training of these these new Jesus people, these guys that have just come to faith, and it says that when he found Paul and he brought him to Antioch, notice what it says. I think it'll come up here on the screen. Yeah. It says, and for an entire year, they met with the church and they taught a considerable number and the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Now, now, the disciples didn't call themselves Christians. The people on the outside trying to figure out, well, we've lived in this city all our life, in the city of Antioch, and now there's this thing happening with these Jesus people everywhere, and they're bringing in outsiders to train them. What are we going to... These are... They like this guy Christ. They're, they're Christians. That's what we're going to call these guys Christians. The followers of Christ didn't call themselves Christians. It, it was the outsiders that called them Christians. In Acts chapter 26, verse 28, what we have is Paul standing before King Agrippa. And he's giving his appeal then before King Agrippa. And King Agrippa replies to Paul and he says, In a short time, you're going to persuade me to become a Christian. You you see, King Agrippa is on the outside looking in. He, He refers to him as Christian. The only other passage there is Peter who's talking about if you have to suffer at the hands of the outsiders, persecution, you suffer as a Christian. Because they look down upon, and it was a derogatory term for outsiders to call those people that followed Jesus. We have an example of this outside of Scripture to help us understand the mindset of people that were outside of the church and this term... um, Christian, there's a guy by the name of Cornelius Taxius. He was a Roman senator, and he lived at the same time that the Apostle Paul lived. He was also a great historian. And being a historian, this Roman senator was writing about something that Nero did. Nero was the, was the Caesar, the, the, the big boss, the emperor at the time in Rome. And, and Nero was nutso. He was absolutely crazy. And he burned down his own city, Rome, at one point to to wipe it out, to to rebuild certain portions of it. And it said that as he watched Rome burn, he he played in his garden with a fiddle. He was a nutso guy. But the people of Rome weren't too stoked when their emperor burned down their city, so so they got up tight about him. And then what we have from, from Taxius is telling us what Nero did in trying to blame the Christians for the burn, burning down of Rome. So, so Nero didn't want to take the, burn, the blame for burning down Rome. He tried to blame it on Christians, and this is what he writes. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt 
inflict, um, sorry, fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations. Their abominations were that they wouldn't um, follow Roman gods and, and they wouldn't claim their allegiance and bow down before Caesar, so, so they had an abomination. There was a, it was a class that was hated for their abominations, and notice what it says, called Christians by who? By the populace. That's what the people did. They called these new Jesus people Christians. Jesus people didn't call themselves Christians. Now, I say all of that to point out this. The reason that this term is so ambiguous in our culture and it can be used in so many ways in our culture is because it's not defined in the Bible. You can't turn to any passage that says, hey, if you're going to be a Christian, you need to live this way. It's undefined. And so people can and do all sorts of things, don't they? And still call themselves Christians. But here's the deal. Jesus never asked you to be a Christian. Nowhere in Scripture. But there is a term that Jesus used. In fact, there's a term that shows up over 270 times in Scripture, and it's the term that Jesus himself used to describe and define those who truly followed him. And that word is disciple. Now, the reason that we make a big deal about this is because there's nothing vague or ambiguous about this word disciple. And the reason that there's nothing vague or ambiguous about this word disciple is because Jesus himself defines it for us. Christian can and has been defined a million different ways by by culture and and offshoots and whatever you want to say. But, But disciple has been defined for us. And one of the clearest and most powerful definitions is here in our text. And so the question that we really want to ask ourselves as a church and as individuals is not so much, are we a Christian? We're not going to throw the terminology out. We've grown used to it. It's a part of our culture. But but the question that we really want to ask for the sake of ourselves is this. Not so much, are we a Christian, but are we a disciple? And are we a disciple according to the way that Jesus defined disciples? So let's look at our text. John 8, we're going to pick up in verse 30. And it says that as Jesus had been teaching all throughout John 8, it says in verse 30, as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. So what does Jesus do with this many? And it says, so Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. You see what it says? Jesus, speaking to those who believed, said to them, If you continue in my word, then you're truly disciples of mine. Jesus defines those who are truly disciples of his as those who are truly continuing in his word. Uh, Other translations say abide in his word or remain in his word or hold to his word. The Greek word is, is, is meno and it means to hold to it, it means to know it, and it means to apply his word to your life. He says, if that's you, then you're truly a disciple of mine. Here's Jesus's point. It's going to come up here on the screen. 
what you are is defined by what you do with my word. That's what Jesus is saying here. Christian, I don't know what that means so much of the time. Disciple, you want to be a disciple? What you are is defined by what you do with my word. Are you a Christian, whatever that ends up meeting in our, our culture, or are you a disciple according to Christ himself? And the determining factor is what we do with his word, whether we're willing to take his word, embrace his word, and live out his word. Notice what it says there in verse 30 and 31. Jesus is telling this to people who believed him, it says. He'd been teaching for days. These are people that are going, hey, this is great. We we like what Jesus is saying. We're buying into the teachings of Jesus. This sounds good to us. At some level, they they believed Jesus. These were pro-Jesus people. They weren't against him. But Jesus staying true to his pattern of calling disciples that we've seen all the way through the gospel is that he's less interested in just accumulating large numbers and far more interested in the commitment level of those who he's calling to be his disciples. We, we just saw this recently. We, we had a message not long ago called a call to commitment where, where three different men came to Jesus and said, we want to follow you. And he wouldn't let them follow him until he had laid out the cost of following him. So, so we see this as a pattern in his life. The way by which these people were to be defined was if they stayed true to and lived out God's word. You want to be my disciple, then you stay true to and live out my word. And so that's now a standard that we, the church, need to apply to ourselves. We, as followers, need to apply to ourselves. And that's why we need to ask ourselves, what are we? Biblically speaking, what are we? Are, are we Christian? Are we churchgoers? Are, are we Bible carriers? Are we Christianese speakers? We know the lingo. Or are we truly disciples according to Jesus? And the answer for us, each of us individually, will hinge on what we're doing with God's Word, right? How we define ourselves now hinges on what we're going to do with God's word. Do I pursue it, to know it, to apply it to my life? That's what it boils down to. Do I pursue it, to know it, that I might apply it to my life? You see, the, the word disciple in our culture doesn't quite mean the same that it did to them. We don't really have a basis for it, right? Disciple. What's a disciple in our world outside of church world, right? The the word really doesn't get used much. But in the Hebrew culture and the Hebrew mindset, a, a disciple was a far different thing. It was a large part of their culture, so they had a different understanding of a disciple. And th- this is why. Because their their lives revolved around their faith, right? We're not talking about a secular people. Their leaders were religious leaders. 
In first century Israel, the, the leaders of the people were religious leaders. They weren't a secular nation. They, they, their whole lives revolved around their faith. And their teachers were their rabbis. If you were going to go to school, you went to the synagogue for school. And, and so your teachers were your rabbis. And you understood something about your rabbis in that at some point in their life, they had been a disciple of someone else. And that meant something. It meant something because to be a disciple carried a high commitment and a very, very high cost to it. We don't understand it in the realm of disciple, but we understand it in the realm of other things in our our culture. So, for example, if you see a surgeon, you understand certain things about him from his past. At some point, he went through a lot of schooling, or she went through a lot of schooling. They they committed themselves at some point, neglected fun stuff so that they could study, so that they could be smart enough, so that they could do a good enough job to, to get where they are. We, we know certain people in our culture that have committed themselves. When you see a soldier, right, in uniform, you understand something about that soldier, don't you? You understand that they've set certain parts of their life aside so that they can be committed to the protection of our nation and they can be called at any moment to go anywhere that, that their higher-ups tell them to go. And that's why oftentimes, and rightly so, whenever you see a, a, a soldier in uniform, you often do what? Hey, thank you for your service. Well, why do you do that? Well, because you understand that it took a great commitment in their life to be where they are. You just understand something naturally about them just by seeing them. Well, that, that's the kind of mindset you would have to have toward a rabbi of the day. That, that he had that sort of commitment to the study of the word of God at some point and being a disciple at some point. You see, to be a disciple had a very, very high cost. If you were, as a young man, accepted in as what they called a Talmud, to, to be a disciple of a rabbi, it, it meant that you left everything behind. And you were 100% now committed to following, to learning, and becoming just like this rabbi. What he did is what you did. What he said is what, what you said. What he told you to do is what you did. You're, you're 100% in. You're all in. You're fully committed to listening to, learning from, and becoming like that rabbi. You hung on his every word. You were right behind him constantly. You, you were there to learn and, and to listen and, so that you could be just like him. Now, this was understood in their culture. When they saw a rabbi, they understood that. That's why when Jesus called his disciples, when he went to a boat full of fishermen and said, come and follow me, what does the text say? They left everything and followed him. It doesn't say they came to the shore, they cleaned up the nets, they went home, kissed you know, mom and dad goodbye. And left. No, it says they left dad in the boat with the nets and followed Jesus. They understood what it meant. That's why Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 40, he says, a pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. That's what he's referring to this idea that you are to be becoming like your rabbi, like your teacher. That's why Peter tried to walk on water. That's why Peter did walk on water. What in his little pea brain made him think that he could walk on water? His rabbi's doing it. And so he's like, Jesus, if that's you, and that's what you do, and we can do this, bid me come. 
I want to be, I want to do, I want to follow you wherever you go. Now, the reason that I bring that up is this. We don't have that same consciousness in in the modern American church of commitment. In fact, I would say the modern church culture, and I worded this very specifically, the modern church culture has allowed us to create a comfortable Christianity. Modern church culture has allowed this for us to come in and play audience while others speak to us, play music while others entertain us. Uh, The modern church culture has allowed us to create a comfortable Christianity that is far different and without commitment that we see of Jesus demanding of his disciples when he called them. Quite a difference. For, For the disciple of Christ, the word of God has to be everything, doesn't it? What he says is paramount. It's everything. These aren't suggestions. These are the very words of God to a disciple. The disciple of Jesus, the true disciple of Jesus needs to have a a preemptive yes in his heart before he even knows what the question is from the Lord. Does that make sense? He, He needs to have a preemptive yes in his heart. Lord, if you speak, I'm going to move. It may be difficult. It may not be what I want to hear. It may cause some real soul searching for me. But if you're going to speak, I'm going to adjust my life to come in line with you. I remember this so much after having just become saved. I mean, it's still an issue today. Obviously, I need to conform my life to Christ, but it seemed like it was coming very fast and furious at the time I got saved because a Greek Orthodox priest gave me this really funky yellow Bible, paperback Bible. I think it was just the New Testament. It was all like brown and moldy and funky and and everything. But I started to just devour that thing. But what I found was that I was constantly being confronted by God's word on how I was to live. I just got saved. I had no real understanding of anything Christian. I mean, yeah, my parents would drag us to church on Christmas and sometimes on Easter and stuff. But how much do you really get in that? Now I've got this Bible and I'm reading it and I'm going, uh-oh, uh-oh. And the next line you read down, you're like, uh-oh. And I'm constantly then confronted with what I'm going to do with God's Word. And I have to make a choice at that point. The disciple of Jesus needs to have that preemptive yes on our heart. Lord, if you speak, I'm just going to move in line with your Word. That's what I'm going to do. Where else am I going to go? It's your Word. What Jesus ultimately is getting down to for these guys that he's speaking to here in John chapter 8 and for us is this. Is that there's a vast difference in being a churchgoer and being a true disciple of Jesus that will follow Christ at his word. There's a vast difference, whatever the cost is, to follow him at his word. There's a big difference in believing in Jesus as a historical figure and giving your life to his word, isn't there? 
Church, is that not a vast difference? There's a lot of people that believe something about Jesus, but there's a vast difference in believing something about Jesus and giving your life over to His Word. I've heard, and it's really not uncommon to hear, and I've heard it over and over again, somebody you know that you love and, and you see and they've kind of walked away from the Lord and they're doing their own thing and you, and you approach them like, hey, dude, what's going on? You should be you know, back in fellowship with us and loving on the Lord and coming to the Bible. So you should be in here. And they're like, look, yeah, yeah, I know all that stuff. And you often hear this. I'm just doing my own thing right now. But, but deep down, I love Jesus. Anybody ever heard that? I've probably said it. Listen, that's, that's not uncommon. Or to see a parent that's lamenting over a prodigal child. And they go, yeah, they're really struggling and they're in this and that and, and this pains me to see them there. But I know deep down they love Jesus. Somewhere in there they love Jesus. Or we do that with friends. We lament over a friend. The, the, there's no evidence that God is working in their life at this time and they have no interest in God. But you, you want to tell other people, I know deep down they still love Jesus. But Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You see how inconveniently simple that gets? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. The Bible's really, really hard to understand, isn't it? No. Yes, there are technical portions of it and all that, but all the important stuff is super simple, isn't it? Jesus says, you know what? Let's just make this whole thing really easy. You love me, you follow my word. And so what that means for us is we are defined by what we do then with God's word. In one of my favorite books, Why Revival Terry's, written by Leonard Ravenhill, he says this, one of these days, some simple soul will pick up the book of God, read it, and believe it. And then the rest of us will be embarrassed. We have adopted a convenient theory that the Bible is a book to be explained, whereas first and foremost, it is a book to be believed and after that obeyed. We've developed a convenient theory that we just need to know things about the book, he says. But whereas first and foremost, it's to be believed and right after that, it's to be obeyed. See, Scripture is here to form us. We're the ones that change. Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. If you have a wondering where Nehemiah is, it's Second Chronicles, Ezra, then Nehemiah. If you get to Esther, you've gone too far. If you make it to Psalms, you've gone way too far. Turn to Nehemiah chapter 8. As we think about and close with this idea that Scripture is to form us. Everybody there? Here's what we're going to boil this thing down to. For the true disciple... The Word of God is something to be responded to. It's there to change us. 
we're never to take the Word of God and stay the same and just read it looking for the parts that we like. But the Word of God is to be transformative in our lives. For the true disciple, the Word of God has to be transformative. We need that transformative attitude. We need to approach the Word of God going, Lord, here I am to hear from you and to move when you speak. And what we want to do is be a church and a people like the people of Nehemiah 8. Everybody still awake? In Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1, look at the heart of the people. All the people assembled with a unified purpose at the square just inside the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses which the Lord had given for Israel, notice what it says, to obey. The people come to the scribe Ezra, and they say, bring out the book. We want to hear from the Lord. They weren't there to hear from Ezra. They were there to hear from the Lord. Their lives had been in turmoil and for distress for far too long, and they knew that it had had been because of the neglect of the word of God that their previous generation had ended up in exile in Babylon is because they had rejected God's word. And so the people gather together and they say, this is what we need. Bring out the book. I love that. Then it goes on and it says in verse 2, so on October 8th, Ezra the priest brought out the book of the law before the assembly which included men and women and all the children old enough to understand. And he faced the square just inside the water gate. And notice what it says, from early morning until noon, they read aloud. I can see you guys falling asleep right now. Half the day they read the word. And notice what it says, all the people listen closely to what? The book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden platform. We got one of those right here. Ezra stood at a wooden platform that had been made for that occasion. And to his right were these guys, and to his left were these other guys. And then it says in verse 5, Ezra stood on the platform in the full view of the people, and when they saw him open the book, what does it say? They rose to their feet for half a day? Try that in the American church. Here's what we're going to do, church. For six hours, I'm going to preach. I want everybody to stand up and be enthusiastic. Yeah, how long? These people were hungry for the word of God. They didn't just show up and slump over in their seat and say, okay, let's get this over with so I can get to lunch. They rise to their feet. Why? Because they're expecting to hear from God. Why else would they be there? Bring out the book. We want to hear from the Lord. Then in verse 6 it says, Then Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and All the people chanted, Amen, Amen, and they lifted their hands and they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And the Levites, Jeshua and Bani and all these other guys, they instructed the people in the Lord while they were remained in their place. And they read the book of the law of God and clearly explained the meaning of what what was being read, helping the people understand each passage. Then Nehemiah the governor and Ezra the priest and the scribes and the Levites who were interpreting for the people, said to them, do not mourn and weep. Notice what the people are doing. They're mourning and weeping, bowing down to the ground. He says, do not mourn and weep 
on such a day as this, for today is a sacred day before the Lord your God. For the people had been weeping as they listened to the word of the law. Why are they weeping and mourning? Because they're hearing God's word and they're recognizing that their lives aren't lining up with God's word. They're standing there and Ezra's preaching the word to them and they're going, "Uh uh-oh, oh no, oh, we're in trouble. They're recognizing that the word of God and the rest of the book of Nehemiah, you know what most of it is? It's the people of God listening to the word of God and bringing their lives in line with the word of God. Chapter 8, at the very end of it, they reinstate the feasts. Why? Because God told them they were supposed to. In chapter 9, they're just reading the word and they're confessing their sins and lamenting. It says in chapter 9, I'll just read it real fast. Verse 1 says, On October 31st, the people assembled again. And this time, they fasted and dressed in burlap and sprinkled dust on their heads. That's, that's mourning. They're in sackcloth and ashes. And those Israelites, Um, And those of the Israelites' uh, descent separated themselves from all of the foreigners as they confessed their own sins and the sins of their ancestors. And they remained standing in place for three hours while the book of the law of the Lord was being read aloud. And then for three more hours, they confessed their sins and worshiped before the Lord their God. That's radical. Three hours of the reading of the word and at the end of it, they're going, Uh uh-oh, we better bring our lives in line with the word of God. And they're lamenting in sackcloth and ashes because they look at their lives and they go, it's not measuring up. We didn't know these things before, but now that the word has been exposed to us, we see our lives in light of the word of God. Chapter 10, they bind themselves with an oath together that they're gonna keep the word of God. And then the rest of the book are the steps that the people took to bring their lives in line with God's word and they reinstate the Sabbath and they reinstate, they clean out the temple and they reinstate the tithe and, and they do all these things as they read the book. Here's my point and we're done. We need that same heart within us. That same commitment to God's word. When we show up here, somebody ought to shout from the back of the room, bring out the book. That's what we're here for. We need to hear it so that we can live it. We don't put it in our lives. We we can't do anything about it. But we're here for the book. Bring out the book. We're not here to be an audience. Passively having our ears tickled and being entertained. We're here to be wide awake, expecting because we came to hear from God Almighty speak through His Word and anticipating We should be anticipating and expecting that when God speaks, there's going to be an action that needs to be taken on my part to align my life with God's word. Amen? We we got to approach God's word like that. That's how a church should be. Bring, Bring out the book. Because Jesus said to those who believed him, if you continue in my word, then you're truly disciples of mine. Isn't that what we want to be? How do we get there? Bring out the book. Let's line our lives up with it. Father, as we read this, I confess I fall so short. And, um, and still, Lord, we come 
with great gratitude in our heart that you have given us this amazing book. Lord, forgive us any time that we've looked at reading your word as a burden or coming to the teaching of your word as a burden. Forgive us for that. Let us remember that it's living and that it's active and that it's life-giving. And that if we want to know anything about life, we just bring out the book. It's there. You've told us. Because you loved us, not because you want to put a burden upon us, but because you loved us, Lord. Lord, we as a church now, we want to commit ourselves new and afresh to approaching your word with great reverence, joy, and commitment. Lord, we ask that you'd put into us a spirit that has a preemptive yes on our lips. Just as soon as you show us what we're supposed to do or ask any question, the answer is yes. When your word speaks, Lord, make us a people that are ready to bring our lives in line with your word. Lord, we thank you for it. It's precious. And we come now and we worship you for it. We take time now, Lord, and worship you because you're a God that has spoken. Not to condemn us, but to lead us into a life everlasting with you. That's why you spoke. Amazing you are. Lord, put that heavy on our hearts right now as we worship you how precious your word is to us, and may we never neglect it. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like to know more about our ministry here at The Mission, visit us online at www.themissionnorthshore.org. Thanks for listening, and God bless.